This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The state's largest substance abuse treatment service is scheduled to shut down in just two weeks. The closure of Arapahoe House will leave hundreds of people looking for immediate help. State Senator Sherry John, a Democrat from Wheat Ridge, sits on the Arapahoe House board, which voted last week to shut the organization down. I mean, it is heart-wrenching. It is devastating to sit there and think about the people that we're leaving behind. Well, another lawmaker, State Representative Brittany Pedersen, hopes to make a last-ditch effort to keep Arapahoe's open. She joins us along with the organization's CEO, Mike Butler, and welcome to you both. Thank Welcome. you so much for having us. Arapaho House serves around 5,000 Coloradans a year. It's a nonprofit. And Representative, we mentioned you're hoping perhaps to find a way to keep Arapaho House open. What's your next step? So I, I found out, along with everybody on Friday, uh, that, that they are going to be closing down Arapaho House. And devastating doesn't even begin to come close to describe what this means for our state. We have a an 80 to 90 percent treatment gap nationally for the people who want and need help. That, that is to say those who need help are just not getting it, many of them. Exactly. And, and so you, one out of 10 people who are desperate for help are actually getting treatment. So as we continue to see a, a, an increase in need and a public health crisis, taking out the largest provider in our state is crippling. This, these are people who are going to die without Arapaho. Arapahoe House being opened. And so you essentially are looking at having this declared some sort of an emergency? Help us understand what course you'd like to take. Yeah, so I think that uh, this happened over the, you know, Friday and then it went into the weekend. So I've been in contact with the governor's office, but we haven't had the opportunity to actually work at the Capitol together. Uh, We'll be talking about this uh, today, but what options do we have? We have a 1331 fund, it's an emergency response fund that we've used for floods, for fires. This fund exists because when things are happening, when the legislature is not actually in session, that we can react as we as we need to. I don't know what the dollar amount is. I don't know if there are restrictions here and our ability to actually keep Arapahoe House afloat, but I think that it is our duty to look into every option. Okay, so we have to stress how preliminary this is. I'll say that we have reached out to the governor's office, and they say they're in the very preliminary stages of looking at this issue, but haven't gotten any detail at all. So Mike Butler, CEO of Arapahoe House, uh, given the law of supply and demand, how can your organization be closing if the need is this great? Help us understand that. Yes, it's a very sad dynamic. We're a safety net provider, which means we treat the most vulnerable population in our community. Uh, 90 to 95 percent of our patients are on Medicaid or some type of government subsidy. So we're almost entirely beholding to state and federal and local funding. And what has happened to that funding? Well, it just hasn't kept up with the cost to deliver medical care. And uh, we deliver life-changing treatment, and uh, it's 24-7, and it's very expensive. Medicaid hasn't increased their rates in years, and uh, we were just notified that we can expect uh, our state block grant, federal block grant funding to shrink over the next two years. So uh, faced with the already inadequate reimbursement rates and an outlook from Medicaid uh, that we're hearing on a national level that's going to shrink and our uh, federal block grant funding that's going to shrink, it's just a tsunami 
and it's devastating to the population that we serve. Help us understand that in respect to the fact that Medicaid is eating up a larger and larger part of Colorado's budget. There may be people listening, Brittany Patterson, who say, but gosh, Colorado spends so much on Medicaid. Well, one of the bills that we were working on and that we're bringing forth this year is to actually cover it under Medicaid for inpatient uh, substance use disorder treatment. So this actually, we're building a framework that's going to increase access, but this is going to take time. But what what we're talking about now is just the direct reimbursement that we're giving at the state, but we're not drawing down millions of federal dollars right now that we could qualify for. So we are working through that. Um, I think that immediately what this brings to all of our attention is um, reminding us of how forgotten these people have been and, uh, you know, the system failures that we have set up, that they have not been prioritized. And now we're seeing a much more uh, focus on this issue because everybody knows somebody. We are, you know, this is an epidemic. So let's treat it that way. Why is this happening so quickly with essentially just two weeks notice? Well, that's a good question. And actually, it, it isn't really two weeks notice. We've been very transparent with our funders for over 20 months about our financial condition and how it's deteriorating, uh, the significance of the inadequate reimbursement rates and how it's crippling us. And it's important to know that this is a system problem. This isn't just happening to Arapaho House. Our other peer providers are in the same boat we are. Uh, we're a standalone safety net provider, which means we have no other revenue sources and we're uh, completely dependent on the funding that we receive. So what does this mean for your patients? First of all, how many inpatient folks do you have at this moment? We have about 40 in our various residential. Okay. And then at any given time, we have several hundred in our outpatient clinics. So you're saying that the safety net beyond you is already stressed. Where do they have to turn? That's the big question. This is the question we should be asking. We live in a city of three and a half million people, and we can't find a home for nine pregnant women who suffer from addiction. That is the problem. That was already true before the announcement of the closure? Yes. I see. And if I can say, Ryan, we've talked about this before. These costs are not going to go away. These people are going to end up in our ERs. They already are because of the huge wait lists and the lack of actually um, having access and being able to get treatment. So we're going to have an additional stress on our system that is going to cost us much more. And unfortunately, it's not the right treatment. If I might, if I might add, Go ahead, Mike, yeah. Representative Pedersen, who's been a strong voice for us and all uh, of the treatment providers in Colorado, makes a good point. We know for a fact that every dollar invested in treatment saves our communities $12. These Individuals will end up in the emergency rooms and the judicial system at some point in time. And we know that emergency care is expensive care. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are talking about the imminent closure of Arapaho House. And this is one of the largest treatments uh, for substance abuse centers in Colorado, the largest in Metro Denver. And is there any hope that if the state stepped in, Mike Butler, that Arapaho House could stay open? Or is that a long shot? Well, there's always hope. I've just been made aware of this this morning. Uh, Representative Pedersen just shared that with me. Obviously, uh, that would be something we would consider. But there would have to also be significant work 
done to uh, affect the reimbursement rates going forward also. And you have about 200 employees. They're obviously wondering about their futures. At the risk of sounding dramatic, but I think this is a situation that calls for it, I'd like to ask if more people are going to die because of this. Absolutely. I mean, my mom is only alive because she had access to treatment. I watched her beg for help and have nowhere to go. And we finally got her treatment through an involuntary commitment, but it was such extreme measures to actually get her help. Um, So we are barely skimming off the top of the needs of our state. And this will actually take a huge step backwards. How do you answer that question, Mike Butler? Yeah, that is a wonderful point and, and very illustrative of the of the epidemic that we face. More Americans are now, now dying of accidental drug overdose than car crashes. Uh, that is a devastating statistic in our communities. And uh, I firmly believe that stigma is a major barrier uh, not only to individuals seeking treatment, but to those uh, that are involved in the funding. The, the bias towards this disease prevents uh, the flow of funds that we should be receiving. And yet we have an administration in Washington that is speaking very openly about addiction and about the opioid crisis in particular, that says this is a matter of national emergency and concern. So square that stigma, square what appears to be the lack of support in your mind with what we're hearing from the administration, will you? You well, can't just talk about it. We have to actually support it. If, if, if it's a, an emergency, and it is, we need to actually put funding behind this and prioritize these people. Yeah. It's one thing to declare an emergency and not allocate any funding for it. And again, it's this, it's this stigma that drives a bias with, with our, uh, our citizens across this country that this, they think this is a choice. It is a disease. And it needs to be treated like a disease. Mike Butler, was Arapaho House spending its funds wisely? Is there anything about this that is about how you dealt internally with funding? That's a, uh, I'm glad you bring that up, Ryan, because we have spent the last 20 months, everyone in our organization, and it's important to know, it takes a unique person to work uh, with this population, and our staff is so passionate to help individuals break their cycle of but addiction. Back to oh, this question about funds and how they were managed. Yeah. Over the past 20 months, we have uh, instituted uh, organizational best practices. We've reviewed every process, every procedure. We've improved uh, to the most efficient and effective way we can. And we've reduced payroll 30%. We've reduced expenses 40%. We're trying to be the most effective stewards of the funds we do receive. The reality of it is we've had to close this gap with our reserves reserves for the last seven years, and we're simply out of, out of time. Thanks to both of you for being with us. And this is obviously a developing story. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate it. Mike Butler, president and CEO of Arapaho House, which treats about 5,000 people a year in Metro Denver for substance abuse. It has stopped accepting new clients and will shut down January 2nd. We also heard from State Representative Brittany Pedersen. Arapaho House has uh, mounted a call center for people who need other options, and you can find the information for that call center at CPR.org. Denver is being sued by a man who was wrongfully imprisoned for 28 years. Clarence Moses Eel has filed a civil rights complaint against the city and eight different officials. 
His sentence for a 1988 rape was vacated in 2015 after another man confessed. Then Moses Eel was retried and found not guilty. I spoke with him and his attorney, Eric Klein, Friday, just after they filed suit. Clarence, talk to me about this lawsuit and why you and your attorneys decided to file it. Well, I think the reason now that I've been exonerated is to challenge and attack the wrongful conviction for the injustice that was done to me. Now I can receive some justice. Is this also about money? Do you hope to have some financial recompense? I think based on the law and what the state representatives have said, not just in the state, but throughout the country, that whenever a person is wrongly convicted and they are eventually exonerated, these are some of the guarantees that comes with being wrongly convicted. Now, Eric, I know there's a state law that allows uh, victims to seek a compensation from the state, but this is different, right? The wrongful conviction compensation statute applies regardless of whether anyone is at fault, regardless of whether anyone's civil rights were violated. The civil rights lawsuit serves a different purpose because it seeks to hold individuals and governments accountable for the violation of someone's civil rights. And it's not just about you know, holding people accountable, but also about propelling reform and making sure that nothing like this ever happens to anybody ever again. And that's certainly a major goal of Mr. Moses Hill, is making sure that nobody has to go through what he went through. And so are you pursuing both paths? Yes. So you name, among others, a former district attorney in Denver. How do you hold accountable people who are no longer in office? Well, I mean, the, the civil system allows pretty much one uh, consequence, and that's a monetary consequence. Who else is named besides the former district attorney? Uh, we have the detective who initially investigated the case, the officers who were involved in the destruction of evidence. We've got the forensic serologist who testified at the original trial and also at the most recent trial. We've got the prosecutor who re-prosecuted Mr. Moses Eel in 2016. We've got the Denver District Attorney Office former spokeswoman who gave false uh, information to the media. Clarence, I remember speaking to you some time ago about your dignity and how you had lost that in the years, the decades you'd spent behind bars. Do you have that back? Yes. Almost 100%. There are things that I'm still dealing with, you know, as from a human perspective. You know, it comes back in, in due time. What is a source of joy for you today? Uh, going to pick my daughter up from the airport. That's, that's the joy for me right now uh, because she's surprising me for the Christmas holiday. And this will be really my first Christmas holiday that I really, really am going to be able to uh, experience after many long, dark nights of being in prison. You know, this moment here with my son and my daughter and my 12 grandkids. Thank you to both of you. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Clarence Moses Eel spent 28 years in prison for a rape he didn't commit. His attorney is Eric Klein. They're suing Denver for what they say was an unfair prosecution. City officials are not commenting.
after fire rips through a forest, you can count on that forest to grow back eventually, right? That's the seed of hope following a wildfire. But a new study finds forests just aren't bouncing back like they used to in the West. Camille Stevens-Ruman is with me from Colorado State University in Fort Collins. Hi, Camille. Hi, thanks for having me. You looked at 52 wildfires that burned over the last 30 years in several Western states, Colorado among them. And what's the big takeaway when you do that survey? Yeah, the big takeaway is that when we compare the kind of cooler and drier period of the end of the 20th century, so the the fires that burned between 1988 and 1999, and compare that to the fires that burned at the start of the 21st century, we're seeing um, about a doubling in the amount of sites that have no tree regeneration on them. So we're going from about 15% of our sites to 33% of our sites. So about a third of the landscapes are not recovering um, to have any trees on them. And then there's also a concern about um, a reduction in the density of those um, those sites that do have trees as well. Okay, so the forests are either not coming back, and when they do, they're often thinner, I suppose more scraggly. This is a doubling in a very short amount of time. Did this surprise you? It did, yeah. I mean, you know, we often think about climate change as uh, something that's happening in the future, something that we um, will feel the effects of in years to come. And I think this study really demonstrates that those um, climate effects are happening now. You know, even over this short 30-year study period, we see um, a dramatic change in um, the way our landscapes are recovering after these large fire events. Okay, so climate change is a culprit here. Is this because it's warmer, drier? What are the meteorological um, contributors here? Yeah, so we um, we used a metric that kind of combines uh, temperature and uh, precipitation. It's called deficit. Um, it essentially, what we looked at specifically is how these ecosystems are um, responding to warmer and drier conditions versus cooler and wetter conditions. Um, and so we can't really tease out whether it's the temperature or the precipitation um, that's changing and becoming worse. But you can see that over this 30-year period, we are seeing hotter and drier conditions um, throughout the time period, pretty much across all of our sites. Um, and this is really important because those three years um, or those first few years after a wildfire um, is particularly important in establishing that new forest. And if forests don't go, grow back, um, doesn't that mean that like erosion gets worse and when there are storms that follow wildfires, there's there's just not the forest and the growth that's holding back soil? I mean, it seems like the effects of this could be wide-ranging. Yeah, the effects can be wide-ranging. I mean, I think in terms of uh, erosion specifically, we only looked at trees, and this isn't saying that there aren't there isn't other... Um, fauna come, or flora coming back. So there definitely is um, grass um, and, fla- and wildflower species coming back. Oh. Certainly there's a shrub component um, in a lot of these ecosystems. So there is some plant life coming back. It's just not trees. So it's, we're likely going to see, um, in some of these areas at least, a transition to a non-forested ecosystem like a grassland or a shrubland. Okay. Does this affect some trees, some types of forests more than others? Yeah, definitely. So our... Um, the our drier uh, forest types, so those kind of dry mixed conifer forests or those forests that we really predominantly see here on the front range at lower elevations, those are the most um, at risk. So those are those areas that are already kind of at the edge of um, 
the climatic tolerance for forests. And um, as it gets hotter and drier, we're probably going to see those lower elevation forests drop off and it become more grasslands, whereas the higher elevation forests are a little bit buffered and they will likely transition just to a different forest type rather than losing that forest cover completely. Okay, so differently put, the forests that aren't bouncing back from fire because of climate change are often the kinds of forests people love to move into and next to uh, in, in the outskirts of Denver, for instance. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, our sites range a really large uh, range of conditions. And so this doesn't mean that those forests right around Denver are going to disappear completely, but rather those kind of hottest and driest forests. So you could think about maybe a little bit um, more south in Colorado or lower elevation forests um, are those ones that are going to be the most impacted. And we found about 50% of those sites in those kind of forests are not coming back. Oh, wow. It's significant in that case. It is. Well, I so often hear about the benefits of wildfire for forest health, that suppressing fires for so long has made forests unhealthy. Here you're saying that fire is now wiping out forests, perhaps for the long term. What does this make me, is it supposed to make me (laughs) think about fire? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it becoming worse because of climate change? What's the deal here? Well, I would never be one to advocate not to have more fire. What we need to work on is having more good fire, I like to say. So those fires, perhaps more prescribed burns, or those fires that are burning under less extreme conditions. Because if we break down the two main factors that we found um, as being uh, most important in our study in explaining why we're losing these regeneration, one is climate and the other is the distance to a living tree. So um, these are those areas that are burned at really high severity and all the overstory trees are killed. And if we can avoid having these really large areas of high severity, um, then we have the potential to, uh, to maintain those forests and reduce, you know, the fuels that would potentially lead to a subsequent high severity fire. Okay, so that's why essentially engineering fire might benefit forests in this respect. Uh, and, and what other kind of engineering could you do, let's say, after a more severe fire? In other words, might you go in and plant trees so that the forest returns? I know that that has happened in the past, I think, around the Hayman Burn area, for instance. That was Colorado's, you know, the, the biggest one in state history. Correct. Yeah. So, um, you know, what I spoke about before is what we can do in landscapes before a fire happens, right? Doing more fuels reduction and allowing fires to burn. But after those big events happen, um, we do need to get better uh, about where we plant um, because a lot of our planting guidelines kind of reflect a past uh, climate. And we need to be thinking about where, how our current and future climate is going to dictate where we see regeneration success. Hmm. So there are lots of places within those burned areas that may not be recovering well because they're really far from a living tree, but their climate is still conducive. So identifying those areas is going to be really important as we do, unfortunately, continue to see large wildfires happening. Speaking specifically of the Hayman Fire, which was in 2002, 138,000 acres burned, Um, This is roughly between Denver and Colorado Springs. How is it doing in terms of regeneration? I think it was one of the spots you looked at, right? It was, yeah. So it it is um, a part of those areas that are um, not recovering the best, especially in those um, areas that have really high severity. So our... um, 
our sites that were in the middle of those really high burn patches, which unfortunately the Hayman fire did have a fairly large area of a high severity, we're seeing very little regeneration. But around those edges, it's looking a little bit better. You know, we are seeing some infill into that, into those areas. Meanwhile, don't forecasts show that there will be more wildfires because of climate change? I mean, listen to this from California Governor Jerry Brown, where fires have wreaked havoc this year. The fire season used to be a few months in the summer. Now it's almost year long. These fires are unprecedented. We never see anything like it. Scientists are telling us this is the kind of stuff that's going to happen and we got to deal with it. So here you have climate change resulting in forests not bouncing back in many cases. You have climate change leading potentially to more fires. Is there something of a vicious cycle going on here? Well, this is what I would say. I mean, we definitely are. There's a lot of um, research out there that's showing that we are seeing longer fire seasons and more area burned. Um, but we also, as uh, as an institution of firefighting agencies, we put out 98% of all wildfires pretty effectively during the initial attack. And so it's really that only that 2% that we hear about um, on the news. And that if instead we change that 98% that's perhaps burning under less severe conditions to aid us in how we're managing these landscapes, we have the potential to help avoid the spread and the kind of devastation that we see when these large wildfires happen. You know, we do live in these fire-prone ecosystems, so there's no chance that we're going to stop wildfires altogether. We've obviously um, tried doing that for the last century, and it has helped create the situation we're in now. And so we need to figure out how we can live with fire rather than trying to stop it. That is to have fire work for us, I think I hear you saying. Exactly. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Camille Stevens-Ruman is an associate professor, pardon me, assistant professor in the Department of Forest and Rangeland Stewardship at Colorado State University. And we talked about her study showing that forests in the West aren't bouncing back from wildfire like they used to. And climate change is a culprit. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There were fascinating Coloradans who died in 2017, and we are remembering some of them in these final days of the year. Today, newspaper man Robert Rawlings. He spent more than half his long career as editor and publisher of the state's oldest operating daily newspaper, the Pueblo Chieftain. But his influence didn't stop there. Rawlings died in March at age 92. And the Chieftain's managing editor, Steve Henson, is on the line to tell us more about his former boss. Steve, thank you for taking the time. Good morning, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be with you. The Pueblo Chieftain has been in the Rawlings family for three generations. With Bob's death, I understand that's about to change, and we'll talk about that shortly. But first, let's get a sense for who Bob Rawlings was. What would he do if a big advertiser, say, called in to complain about a story? Well, he would investigate the story to see if it was fair. He would check it out. But at the end of the day, if the story was accurate and it was a, and there weren't any problems with it, he would tell the advertiser that's just the way it is. And I know he did that on a number of occasions. Um, and you'd have advertisers also call and complain about editorials and so forth, which Bob was very much had his hands in. And he just didn't bow to advertising pressure. Why is that important? 
Well, I, I, it's you have to keep your integrity. Um, I'll give you an example. In the in the last election, Pueblo voters faced a decision to whether or not to allow retail marijuana in the city limits, and we accept marijuana ads. Uh, we believe that there are retail business that the voters have approved statewide. But when it came time to decide whether or not we wanted to support um, those retail stores within the city limits, um, Bob and the editorial board, of which I'm a part, decided that we don't think so. We don't think that it's good for the community, even with the tax revenues, and took a pretty courageous stand and said no. Now, the voters decided otherwise, but several marijuana stores said, well, that's it. You know, We're done advertising in the chieftain, so... Huh. Uh, the chieftain took a hit over that, but Bob didn't care. Advoca- advocating for Southern Colorado's water supply was one of Bob Rawlings' missions as well. Why was he so passionate about water? Well, Bob grew, he was he was born in Pueblo, but he grew up in Los Animas, uh, which is out in the eastern plains of Colorado. And living there, he lived through the dust ball. He saw the dust storms. He saw how farms were devastated, and um, he saw also the effects of the Depression. And so that just stuck with him his whole life, and he realized that for Southern Colorado to endure, it had to have water. Now, through a complicated system of irrigation ditches and water transfers um, from the Colorado River and other sources, um, there is water in the lower Arkansas Valley. But in Colorado, it's very strange because you don't actually own the water, you own water rights. And so places like Aurora, Colorado Springs and other entities started coming into the lower Arkansas Valley and buying up those rights. And then they would use a complicated system of transfers to get the water to Aurora or to Springs or wherever. And farmers in the valley faced a horrible choice. They said, well, I've been farming my whole life. It's a difficult business. You know, we're subject to the whims of nature. And somebody's offering us millions of dollars for our water rights. It's hard to say no to that. And Bob fought that. He really impressed upon them the importance of staying together and trying to to keep the communities together. But he also fought like crazy against the bigger cities, for example, like Aurora, and to say, okay, if you're going to do this, you're going to have to compensate these areas. Um, You're going to have to revegetate the areas. And I think he got an awful lot of concessions for southern Colorado, even when water was taken out. But how did farmers and ranchers respond to what sounds like the position he took, that they shouldn't necessarily be selling their water rights? Well, it was very difficult. Um, I was in at least a couple of meetings with Bob and a number of prominent farmers from the Valley that wanted to meet with him. And their stories were, were very persuasive. They would say, you know, I'm 80 years old. I've worked on the farm from four in the morning to dusk, seven days a week, my entire life. Uh, My kids aren't in farming. They've moved on and got an education and done other things. And here I am. And then somebody's offering me several million dollars for my water that'll go to my kids and my generation. How can I say no to that? And Bob understood that. And he, he accepted that. But his point on the flip side was, that's fine. I understand that. But if you do it, then that area will dry up and it will become just not viable. And we've seen some of that in, in southeastern Colorado where communities have just basically vanished. And uh, so what Bob came up with and a lot of other people came up with was water leasing. 
And that makes a lot more sense. The idea that you're not getting rid of those rights altogether, but perhaps loaning them out when uh, it's especially dry for a big community. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And between now and the end of the year, we are remembering some remarkable Coloradans who passed away. And uh, today it's newspaper man Robert Rawlings of the Pueblo Chieftain. He died in March at age 92. And I'm speaking with the paper's managing editor, Steve Henson. And uh, I understand that he had a military background and that perhaps his experience as a veteran might have influenced his career in newspapers. What would you say to that? Definitely, Ryan. He um, he was a member of the greatest generation. He served in World War II aboard a sub-chaser in the Pacific. And one of the experiences that he had after the Japanese surrendered, his ship was one of many that helped liberate a uh, Japanese POW camp. And at the particular camp where they helped the uh, British and Dutch uh, officers off of the island and to get medical care, there were about 100 officers. And he says they were basically walking skeletons. And that experience stayed with him his whole life. And he was extremely patriotic. And for those of you who ever visited Pueblo and you go to our convention center, you'll see these giant bronze statues that Bob paid for. And there are our four Medal of Honor recipients. We've had more Medal of Honor recipients than the other city in the United States. And Bob wanted our community to embrace that. And that's why we're called the Home of Heroes. And Bob built those statues, and he's done many things through the years. He's been instrumental in bringing the National Medal of Honor Convention to Pueblo two times and many other things. We do all sorts of patriotic things through the year that the the chieftain pays for. And um, a day didn't go by that when Bob walked from his car to our office that he didn't stop and salute the flag and then come into his office. What will happen now to the Pueblo chieftain that Bob Rawlings is gone? Well, Bob's wishes were that the paper would be sold upon his death um, with the proceeds of the sale to go into his foundation. He always had a dream that the money from the chieftain would live on and still do good things in the community. So, um, for example, nonprofits would apply for grants from the foundation, and that that's going to go on forever. And um, that was his dream. And so the paper probably will be sold in sometime in 2018. And um, the paper is still very viable, and so we anticipate a number of people and organizations will be interested in it. And, and that process has really just begun. But will it stay sort of independent, or is it most likely to be snatched up by a conglomerate of some kind? It, it depends. You know, if um, there are some of the big chains that we are hoping that will not purchase the paper because, you know, they'll look at it as a, a way to make money. And, they'll, and you, you can see the effect that some of those big chains have had on papers in different communities. Bob's uh, daughter, Jane Rawlings, who's now the publisher of The Chieftain and has been here for uh, well over 15 years and very involved in the day-to-day operations, um, she has made a commitment that she will strive to sell it to someone who believes in community journalism. And so, that, of course, that's, that's a really important in a community like ours. Do you still miss him? Oh, yeah. No. Uh, he and I were very close. Um, I've known Bob for 42 years. Um, in my, I'm in my 40th year here at the Chief, and I work closely with him for the past, ooh, boy, 25 to 30 years as both first city editor then managing editor. Um, we also were friends. I knew him before uh, I started working here. We had played tennis together, and he was an accomplished athlete. He was a high school state championship basketball player. And um, he was an extremely difficult person. Um, he was very demanding. I think that generation, after they went through the Depression and they went through the war, they just didn't have time for 
for Mickey Mouse, and they weren't shy about telling you how they felt, and they didn't worry necessarily about your feelings. Um, but I also loved the guy. I mean, it was it was a really a, a love dislike relationship, and um, I think everybody that knew Bob felt that way. That because he was such an unbelievably charismatic, dynamic person, but it was his way, and he he wielded that influence. Steve Henson, managing editor of the Pueblo Chieftain, he helped us remember the paper's late publisher, Bob Rawlings. Hattie McDaniel was the first African-American to win an Oscar. It was for Gone with the Wind. I sincerely hope I shall always be a credit to my race and to the motion picture industry. My heart is too full to tell you just how I feel. And may I say thank you. God bless you. McDaniel played Mammy in the Civil War epic, and she grew up in Denver. She's the subject of a play on now at the Aurora Fox Theater called Hi-Hat Hattie. Let's learn more about McDaniel from biographer Jill Watts. We spoke in 2006 about her book, Hattie McDaniel, Black Ambition, White Hollywood. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you for inviting me on. Wondering if you can give us a sense for Hattie McDaniel's early career in Denver as an entertainer. That's one of the things that most surprised me when I started to research her life was her years in Denver and how important they were. Her family moved to Denver in the late 1890s and and looking for more opportunity. And sadly, in a lot of ways, didn't find that opportunity. But the McDaniel children found the opportunity on the stage. And in the African-American community of Denver, you had a, a small community, but a very thriving community that really supported stage and theater. That's where she and her brothers and sisters got their start, is on the stages of Denver. And most importantly, kind of playing these outrageous satires of the images later on she would play in the film. She played, early on in Denver as well, this mammy role. She didn't have the sense that she was playing into a stereotype. She had the sense that she was making a commentary on a stereotype. Absolutely. She saw this as a satire, and the community read it as a satire. That's why she was so popular, because she was sort of this over-the-top kind of comedian who was willing to take on white stereotypes and criticize them. Indeed. You write that although on the surface, Hattie McDaniel's image reinforced the most horrific racist stereotypes of black women, her audience clearly understood her intentions. It's an interesting kind of thing in her life because here she is within her community, very popular and very sought-after performer, while at the same time within society at large, marginalized and segregated. You know, within Denver, you, you, you dealt with the residential segregation and the racism, but limited economic opportunities. And so the McDaniel children and, and her, their parents, Otis McDaniel was a, worked in a barbershop, and he was a porter there, and Hattie McDaniel basically followed her mother into domestic service, something that she didn't want to do and something that she would repeatedly say that she was attempting to break away from. Of course, in her career, Hattie McDaniel would go on to play maids quite frequently, but her sense was always better to play a maid than to actually be one. Right. She was very proud of being a domestic servant. She said, you know, this is an honorable profession that many people pursue. But I think she made the point that what are the opportunities available to me? And she's very famous for that quote, you know, I'd rather play a maid for $700 a week than be a maid for $7 a week. And that was the reality for her. She was also a blues singer. 
How does she end up in Hollywood? She goes to Chicago after Denver. I think in part that's where the blues capital is, really. And um, out of Chicago, she works for many years, and she eventually ends up broke in Milwaukee, where she'd been touring with the show that folded, and she got a job as a bathroom attendant. And after a while, the club owner discovered that his bathroom attendant was really a quite talented blues singer. He put her on stage, but then the depression hit, and he went out of business. And so there she was out of a job again. So she took what was left of her money and got in a car with some friends, and they headed out to Hollywood, where Sam and Etta McDaniel, her brother and sister, had moved. And they had been working in movies. And I I think she'd come out there with the hope that maybe she could find some work there. So she eventually breaks into the movie biz. Uh, She gets an uncredited film role in 1932 as a Southern house servant in a movie called The Golden West. In 1934, she's chosen to play a washerwoman, Aunt Dilsey, in a lead part in uh, Will Rogers' film Judge Priest. She seemed to pretty much play maids and servants in the movies, uh, pretty defined roles for her. For African-Americans, there were limited roles. You either played a servant, a, a silly servant, or you kind of were dressing for a set. You, you moved through silently and served white characters. And what's really frustrating, I think, for black performers is if you can think and imagine somebody like Hattie McDaniel, who's been an independent performer and an independent artist, writing her own material and performing her own material, she gets to Hollywood, and really there's a lot of opportunity to play servants, but nothing else. She's playing maids and servants, but she's playing them with a certain persona, and and that persona changes. Uh, As as narrow as the roles are, she's able to at least give it some range. Yeah, I think that's, again, another surprising thing about Hattie McDaniel, is is if you compare her to other African-American women performers of that period of time, she's very different. And I think this is because of this background, these early comedic performances in Denver as a satirist, and then later on, her career as a blues woman. And she combines those two to create this really different style of playing the maid or the mammy, where she's very outspoken and she's very bold. And she pack talks her white employers on a, on a regular basis. And I think what, what this does for white Hollywood is she's kind of an explosive figure. And so this figure, who's so bold, has to be confined to comedic roles. In a lot of ways, Hollywood didn't know what to do with this strong presence except to funnel it into comedy. Some of this emerges in Gone with the Wind. You get the sense that Mammy has more common sense than Scarlett O'Hara. I think that's absolutely right. I, the character of Mammy and the way she plays it is so powerful because she is the only one in the whole film that understands what's going on. You see in the opening scenes where she's scolding Scarlett and, and giving Scarlett advice. And then you see the famous lacing up the corset scene where they're fighting over whether or not Scarlett will eat her meal. And she's just exasperated. And I think that's the kind of genius of Hattie McDaniel again. She's able to convey complete disdain for white people that she serves. She wins the Academy Award in 1939 for Best Supporting Actress, beating out co-star Olivia de Havilland. Um, Does that open more doors for her then? She had hoped it would, but in in the end it didn't. The Academy Award for her was validation that what she had been doing all along was good. She had already been receiving criticism from the African-American community and other progressive whites for playing these roles of, of these servants. But the performance in Gone with the Wind was seen as so powerful across the board by African-Americans who had been her critics even. 
And the award stood symbolically as something that was so unique and, and such an achievement for an African-American. There was great hope within the African-American community, within the broader community at large of, of progressive whites, and within Hattie McDaniel, that the roles were going to get better, and they didn't. And that's the great tragedy, I think. It's the bittersweet victory where she saw this as as a mark of achievement and that Hollywood would finally surrender just these kind of one-dimensional roles that they were giving to African-Americans and create better and more respectful roles that reflected African-American life. Even after the Academy Award, she's quoted in the press saying, I'm, I'm looking for the next part, which will be a, a, a dignified part. And after the Academy Award, you look, she makes very few films. Most of them are, again, the silly servants. What is Hattie McDaniel's legacy? Well, I think it's a mixed legacy. On the one hand, I think for a long time she's been understood and viewed as a sellout, and to some degree she did. She sold out to get success in Hollywood. She was an ambitious performer. On the other hand, however, and this is what she would argue, she established a pioneering presence within the studios. And I think that was important. You can't discredit the racism she faced within the studios. The studios were segregated. Black performers didn't have dressing rooms. They often were segregated on the lots. They couldn't use the same bathrooms as white performers. They couldn't eat in commissaries. The other thing, though, I don't think that people know about Hattie McDaniel was outside the studio walls in terms of her legacy. She was a, was a strong fighter for civil rights. She led a legal battle to stop housing segregation in Los Angeles. And she was victorious in that and eventually led the way for Supreme Court decision to outlaw housing segregation throughout the United States. Jill, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me on. Jill Watts is author of Hattie McDaniel, Black Ambition, White Hollywood. We spoke in 2006. McDaniel grew up in Denver and is the subject of a show running now at the Aurora Fox Theater called High Hat Hattie. It runs through December 23rd. Finally, we are very excited for Wednesday and the airing of the Colorado Matters Holiday Music Special. It's a star-studded affair with stand-up from Josh Blue and an appearance by Isaac Slade, frontman of the Denver rock band The Fray. Slade and his wife Anna performed together and sat down for a chat in which I asked about a vicious rumor I heard that Isaac listens to Christmas music year-round, particularly the soundtrack to A Charlie Brown Christmas. Yeah, actually, I, I was preparing kind of mentally to talk about that tonight, and I tr- tried it on a friend of mine today, and she said, you know, one of the common traits of psychopaths is that they listen to Christmas music year-round. <laughs> and I was like, that's probably not true. <laughs> but yeah, I jog, to, I jog to Charlie Brown in June. But that's a thing I do. Well, here's Isaac and Anna Slade with Silent Night. Oh, 
Isaac Slade, frontman of the Denver rock band The Fray, and his wife Anna with Silent Night. Tune in to the Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza Wednesday on CPR News. Love's pure.